Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monocle 24 with me, Carlotta Rabello. Over the next 60 minutes, we'll be bringing you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week here on Monocle 24, with highlights from our studios at Midori House in London and also from around the world. This week, we talk gender and politics with Iceland's foreign minister. The women of Iceland always approach their demands from equality, from a position of strength and self-confidence. And staying in Iceland, we also visit the Harpa Concert Hall in the capital Reykjavik before heading to Copenhagen to meet the legendary chef René Redzepi. Plus, it's that time of the year when one of the weirdest political holiday traditions takes place. Please welcome the 2022 National Thanksgiving Turkey's Chocolate and Chip. All that and much, much more over the next hour here on The Curator with me, Carlotta Rabello. Now, this week saw Russia launch a barrage of missile attacks on the Kyiv region of Ukraine, knocking out power and causing casualties. The electricity outage also affected half of neighbouring Moldova, a fellow former Soviet state which is connected to Ukraine's power grid. This comes as the European Parliament website faced a sophisticated cyber attack, disrupting its services just moments after members voted to declare Russia a state sponsor of terrorism. To get the latest, Monaco's Georgina Godwin was joined by the Ukrainian MP Aliona Shkrum in Kyiv and Alex Kokshadokov, a risk analyst focused on Russia and Ukraine at S&P Global Market Intelligence. Let's have a listen. It's difficult to say which areas were, target, were targeted. It's easier to say which were areas were not targeted, actually, because it was a massive attack on whole infrastructure, on civilian objects, on energy, uh, cybersecurity, uh, telephone connection, and etc., etc. So right now I'm actually in my apartment in Kiev. I have no electricity, no water whatsoever, no cold, no hot water, and no Wi-Fi connection and no normal telephone connection. So that's why we have to switch, you know, from Zoom to, to telephone conversation, and I hope it still works. And, and do we have accurate casualty figures? Uh, no, not yet. We know that there are 10 people who were killed yesterday in one day. And unfortunately, there might be more because some of them are still in the process of, uh, um, you know, being, being taken out of the, um, um, of the buildings. And uh, more than 50 people were wounded, some of them in the heart condition. And has this affected nuclear power plants? Uh, I know that a lot of nuclear power plants uh, had to restrain, uh, let's say, the electricity supply and were hit. Um, again, the irony is that um, the Ukrainian energy system was actually built and was actually constructed during the Cold War uh, between the Soviet Union and the U.S. So actually the energy system was prepared to undertake certain amount of bombing or shellings or crises. But of course, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not possible to... Um, to, to, to withhold all of the missiles, like 50 or 60 and 100 missiles that they're sending towards us. So we are actually quite good in repairing stuff. And you might have seen that, you know, we are, we are doing that pretty fast. Usually, for example, in the center of Kiev, the electricity supply will go out for uh, four to six hours, but not more than one or two days. 
Um, yesterday was a big challenge in terms of not nuclear uh, power plants, not in terms of energy, but in terms of telephone connection, in terms of uh, water supply that was hit, and in terms of that a lot of people in Kharkiv and Dnipro region, for example, had no Wi-Fi, no telephone connection, no connection whatsoever, even to call the emergency or to call an ambulance. And what's been President Zelensky's response? And is there a state programme in place to help people affected by this? Of course. I mean, our intelligence and a lot of intelligence all over the world said that Putin will do it starting from summer. It was quite logical to, um, you know, to, su- to suspect because Putin thinks as a terrorist, he acts as a terrorist. Uh, he shows that he's a terrorist, that he would do something like that in, in winter, in the cold times. So obviously we were preparing. Right now there's more than 4,000 actually emergency uh, locations all over Ukraine where people can come and have uh, well food uh, security, Wi-Fi connection, medical supplies, and most importantly, heat and hot water. But obviously, 4,000 are not enough. And I can tell you that um, it's completely unprecedented. So never in the modern history of the world we ever had such a blackout and cut off electricity or you know water or connection uh it never happened the closest one was probably london blackout in, during the second world war but it was not that severe the population was not as dense we didn't have as many residential high buildings so the experts tell us that it's impossible actually to be prepared for this kind of stuff in huge cities like Kiev with 3 million people with residential buildings residential buildings you cannot survive in them for weeks without water Um, You can do it in the private houses, you can do it in the village, but not in the big city. So obviously, you know, psychologically we were prepared, we did what we could do. Right now there is an online map where you can look um, and understand where you can go if there is no heating in your area, understand where you can get the water. A lot of water supplies from the fountains, from the public fountains work, they all have the generators, so you can get the water you need, but obviously it is not sustainable. We need to stop Putin and we need to stop those energy terrorism. And and Alex, how did this affect Moldova? Um, Good morning. Um, Moldova's energy system is connected to that of Ukraine. Um, That's why uh, any disruption to the uh, Ukrainian supply has a knock-on effect on Moldova. Uh, Yesterday, there were reports that power was out in about half of the country, including the capital city of Kishinev, but also in the uh, uh, Russian-controlled breakaway region of Transnistria. Um, And so as a result, uh, there have been uh, disruption to services uh, across Moldova as well, not just Ukraine. And when electricity outages happen, it affects everything else. It affects uh, communications such as internet, uh, but it also affects uh, water supply. And the country's accused Russia of blackmail after it threatened to cut gas supplies. What's the detail on that? Uh, Russia is very well known for using energy supplies uh, as uh, a leverage. Uh, and it has used it in the past and is likely to use it in the future. Uh, Russia is attempting to uh, put additional pressure on the government uh, of Moldova, which is pro-EU, in order to reverse the 
policy of that government uh, in Chisinau. Uh, Russia is also actively supporting uh, pro-Russian opposition parties in Moldova, which have been organizing protests in Moldova since July this year uh, against the current government. Um, Russia is not happy that uh, Moldova's uh, people have chosen a pro-EU course and it wants to reverse it. Mm. And how is Moldova preparing for the worst case scenario if indeed that gas is cut off? Uh, Moldova is first talking to Romania, uh, which is its immediate neighbour to the west uh, and which can supply at least some of the gas. Um, So there are some provisions which are being made for this scenario of a complete cut-off. Actually, if Russia cuts off gas for Moldova, uh, a big impact will be for the Russian-controlled breakaway region of Transnistria, which has a lot of heavy industry, which depends on continued supply of Russian gas. So, uh, ironically, Transnistria uh, would be even in worse situation than the rest of Moldova. And Aliona, Russia is saying that Ukraine's repurposing Moldova's gas, which goes through the country for its own purposes. Is there any truth to that? Well, uh, forgive my language, but I haven't slept all night. So, of course, it's complete bullshit because Ukraine has always um, stick to all of the contracts. Ukraine has always been a reliable partner with European Union, with Moldova, with all of the other countries. Russia, on the other hand, has never been a reliable partner. And Russian economical deals have never been about economics. It has always been about political influence. It has always been about political gains um, and, and terrorism, basically. Uh, I think that we've seen this mistake when the whole Europe thought that Nord Stream could be an economic project or an energy project or a business project, while in fact it was always a political one, it was always Putin's influence. Um, what Putin does in Moldova right now, he did it for 20 years, if not more, in all of the countries of Europe, actually. Well, he did it in Ukraine, he supported the Russian party, uh, he supported the Russian uh, TV channels and propaganda, uh, he forced uh, economic allies uh, for his political gain. He did it with the far uh, right parties or far left parties in Italy, in France, all over Europe, basically, Germany. Uh, we know how corrupt some of the politicians uh, got. We know that some of the politicians are under investigation for receiving money for, for a number of years from Russian banks and from Russia and from Russian oligarchs. So obviously he tried his best, and obviously he was quite sure, for example, with Ukraine, um, that his uh, economic system and his propaganda system and his corrupt system will get results. That is why Ukraine should have been uh, falling during the three days and Kiev should have been taken during the three days. It didn't work with us. I'm sure it's not going to work with Moldova and I'm sure it's not going to work with EU anymore. I think everybody understood what is the real face of Putin. That's why the European Parliament yesterday actually did a groundbreaking decision on announcing uh, Putin a terrorist and Russia a state uh, that sponsors terrorism and uses terroristic organizations such as private armies, Wagner, and et cetera, et cetera, and actually called for all of the, uh, not just members of parliament, but all of the deputies and members of local councils, members of uh, city council, members of village councils, uh, who are members of the party of Putin, who voted for this war to happen and um, facilitated this war and those war crimes. Um, the European Parliament wants to sanction them all, and I think that this is the right way to do. So it was a groundbreaking decision. The masks are completely thrown away, and I think that you know uh, the world has seen who Putin is. 
and what he was doing for a while. Um, now we need to stop him and we need to protect ourselves. Uh, and just picking up on what you're saying about the European Parliament uh, designating Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism, right after that happened, Alex, uh, there was a cyber attack on, on, on the European Parliament. Uh, do you have any detail on that? Who's responsible? Has it been fixed? Um, it is my understanding that there was no claim of responsibility uh, for the cyber attack of the European uh, Parliament's uh, website yesterday. Uh, but uh, it appears quite likely that uh, this is action of uh, Russian actors, whether directly linked to the government or uh, pro-government Russian groups such as Kilnet. Uh, we've seen in the in the past uh, 10 months that uh, Russian cyber groups uh, whether, again, government-affiliated or uh, government-directed, have been conducting strikes on um, the government websites and, and media websites in countries which have publicly uh, demonstrated support for Ukraine, uh, which have adopted legislation um, uh, critical of Russia or legislation uh, in support uh, of Ukraine. So it, it very much fits the pattern of Uh, similar cyber attacks we've seen earlier this year. Now, Iceland has historically been more amenable to women in politics than most places. Icelandic women, at least women over the age of 40, got the vote in 1915, with their younger sisters getting it in 1920. In 1980, Iceland became the first country to democratically choose a female head of state. In Iceland's current parliament, 30 of its 63 seats are held by women, including those of the Prime Minister and also of our next guest, Iceland's Foreign Minister, Thordis Kolbunreik for Gilfaditor, who spoke to Monocle's Andrew Muller on the Foreign Desk. Andrew began by asking her how Iceland has managed to accomplish better female representation than most other countries. It's many things. No one magical solution or magical puzzle, but... I would argue that it may be because the women of Iceland always approach their demands from equality, from a position of strength and self-confidence. The road has been long and it wasn't easy and it hasn't been easy and I'm sure it hasn't been as easy as it might look. But there were two very important characteristics of struggle at the beginning that may not have been in place in many other societies. So one was that women were able to form a very strong alliance across the political spectrum and across all social divides that mounted a strong campaign for changes at all levels of society. And the activism resulted in the country's largest political rally, the Women's Day Off in 1975. I'm sure you've seen some pictures of that day. And that had, without a doubt, a deciding influence on the election of the first woman president in Iceland, Five years later, in 1980. And the decision of the Women Alliance to run in the municipal election in 1982 and then in parliament election in 1983. So both of these were important because the women were not asking for permission. They were not asking the men to be allowed to join the table. Rather, they were establishing their rights through their own strength. And through this strength, two things happened. First, we got inspiring role models. My grandmother was one of them, founding member of the Women's Alliance, feminist political party. 
And Vintis Fimbuadotti became the world's first woman to be democratically elected as president in the year 1980. So I would argue that role models are extremely important. And this means that girls like me, I mean, I was just used to watching women being in a position of power when they grew up. Uh, but not less importantly, the boys were also used to that fact, to seeing powerful and respected women in television, for example. And this means that later in life, strong men are comfortable working with and working for women. And then second, having more women entering political changes, a political agenda, paving the way for gender equality issues become, to become political issues. And in my view, the single most important thing we have done in Iceland may have been the universal childcare. We have kindergarten for everyone, available and accessible for all children. And this has been extremely empowering for women who could you know, educate themselves like we can in many other European countries, but then have kids and continue joining the workforce and the labor market on their own terms. So it's both the fact that it's accessible and women are capable, but it also has a huge effect on the mindset. So it is looked as a natural thing that both men and women enter the labor force and a woman doesn't have to choose whether she's going to you know, have a family or be strong in the workforce. You mentioned earlier that the representation of women in Icelandic politics has had a, well, it's had an effect on policy in creating those policies and those circumstances which make it easier for women to participate in politics and other careers as well. But do you think it makes any difference to the way that politics is conducted if there's more women involved? I mean, I'm sure you've heard this before, that there is this rather cliched conventional wisdom at large that if more women are involved in politics, then it's less confrontational, it's less vicious, it's less nasty. Do you subscribe to that idea? I would argue that in general, when you have more diversified group of people in a decision making, you would get a better outcome. I would argue that women in general, they approach certain things in a different manner. And then if that's something natural or because of the society, I wouldn't trust myself to draw the line there. And I think nobody can, and I'm certainly not the person to do so. But I would argue that women definitely approach some issues in a different manner. But when we, we now have a much more diverse set of people with the inclusion of women leaders being the most obvious, and one can have a hope that this change will give humanity a better chance of avoiding future catastrophes. And I think many of us have the feeling that when it comes to terrible decisions, like, for example, launching a very senseless and brutal war, women's leader would be less likely to do so. And it seems unthinkable to me that any woman leader would encourage the sort of war of destruction only for the purpose of self-glorification that Putin has led his country into. But of course, that would apply to any civilized person, regardless of gender. But the real problem is that even women have a very good chance of getting into powerful position in some countries, we still have many countries, even countries that Iceland considers like-minded when it comes to fundamental values, where women are still very marginalized and have no real chance to influence domestic politics unless they play uh, very junior partners to male politicians. When you think about those other countries which don't have as great a gender balance as we might wish for, are there any examples from the Icelandic model which can be exported or which other countries could be adopting? The universal childcare is, in my personal opinion, the biggest puzzle because it really gives a certain freedom 
for the women in the house. It's extremely empowering puzzle for women and for the family to have the right to choose how they plan their day-to-day life as a family. And also because it makes it possible, but not least that it changes the mindset. You have a woman that has a family and a career, and the general mindset is that, you know, that's okay, that's good, it's good for the economy, it's good for the society, it's good for the young men, it's good for the young women or girls. It's a stronger society that allows free individuals to make decisions on their own. And if you have a society where, you know, people have children and raise a family, I would argue that adopting that kind of mechanism where universal childcare is really accessible for everyone, I would argue that that's the single most important thing. Maybe also the discussion on, you know, it's not a matter of when women take the power, they're taking it from someone else. I mean, there is room for many strong individuals because sometimes you hear that, you know, when women get strong, the men get weaker. That's a big misunderstanding because with strong women, you get stronger men and you get stronger boys and girls and just individuals from young individuals to adults. You're listening to The Curator with me, Carlotta Rebello. This week saw the celebration of Thanksgiving in the United States, which also meant that the start of the week saw President Joe Biden undertake one of the weirder duties which attends his office, pardoning two turkeys which might otherwise have been bound for a Thanksgiving table on Thursday. Earlier on the Monocle Daily, Andrew Muller was joined by the Austrian journalist and author Tessa Skiskovitz and by Charles Hecker, the senior partner at Controlled Risks, to talk about weird holiday traditions around the world. They started their chat by hearing President Joe Biden showing how the pardoning of the turkey gets done. Please welcome the 2022 National Thanksgiving Turkeys Chocolate and Chip. I tell you what, man. But chocolate chip weighs 46 pounds, and I'm told he loves catching sun on the outer banks. And uh, chip weighs 47, and he loves barbecue and basketball, I'm told. Uh, After receiving their presidential pardons today, chocolate and chip are going to head to one of the nation's great basketball schools and research universities, North Carolina State. And now, based on their temperament and commitment to being productive members of society, I hereby pardon. I hereby pardon, yes. I hereby pardon chocolate and chip. Which one's chocolate, who's chip? President Joe Biden earlier pardoning chocolate and chip. Uh, Charles, uh, we're going to ask you, as we often do, to, to explain your entire country to our listeners. What, what, is, what is going on here? What is the deal with this? First of all, this is a greater act of mercy than you can ever imagine, because I can't even contemplate how bad a 46-pound turkey would taste, <laughs> how long it would take to cook, and what on earth you would do with the leftovers. Um, you know, look, you have to have a turkey at Thanksgiving. Otherwise, people talk about you behind your back. Um, if you're a vegetarian, perhaps you cook a salmon 
Mandarin, or perhaps you skip the whole thing or have a second helping of, of Brussels sprouts. But you've got to have a turkey at the center of a dining table for Thanksgiving. Um, the secret to all of this, the very poorly kept secret, is that actually most people don't like turkey. See, I, I think it is it is way overrated myself. I do have a follow-up question for you, Charles, which is, has there been a U.S. president who you believe has carried this ritual out with particular elan? And I'm very much hoping you will answer why, yes, of course, President George H.W. Bush, because we've got a clip of him doing it. Uh, you know, never work with children and animals, I guess is what they say all the time. <laughs> and you've seen sometimes turkeys who get a little bit single-minded when they're on the table waiting to be pardoned. They behave as if they're about to be executed instead and have gotten a bit out of control. Well, here is uh, Bush the first. That brings me to another traditional moment involving our special guest over here today, the guy in the cage there, who seems understandably nervous. Uh, it is my great privilege to receive the traditional Thanksgiving turkey. Millie has been put upstairs, uh, looking wistfully out of the window, I'm sure. But let me assure you and this fine Tom Turkey that he will not end up on anyone's dinner table, not this guy. Uh, he's granted a presidential pardon as of right now and allow him to live out his days on a children's farm not far from here. President George H.W. Bush pardoning a turkey. Um, Tessa, to bring you in, because we wanted to expand this a bit to talk about what weirdo holiday traditions our own countries have, I, I will lead with the state of Victoria, which is the only jurisdiction I am aware of that holds a bank holiday for a sporting event, and, and it does it twice a year. The Friday before the Australian Football Grand Final is a bank holiday, and the first Tuesday of November, the day of the Melbourne Cup, a horse race, is also a bank holiday. That is really, really nice. I can't even come up with something that um, sporty in Austria. Everything is connected always with Catholic church mm -hmm. feasts and the season, also the seasonal things like uh, Thanksgiving, which would be Erntedankfest in Germany and in Austria, where you sort of schlep all your products that you harvested into a church and get it blessed and all this kind of thing. So it's not very much fun. You know, I always <laughs> I always sort of um, envied, um, you know, the Finns who go to a sauna before Christmas and all this. I mean, it would be unthinkable in Austria to have these interesting things. I mean, the only thing that I have to say about... There's, the, a, there's a quote for the tourism posters. Yeah, well, we could. We could sort of invent something, you know, Cold swim in the Danube, I would be all for it to get... You've got cake and waltzes. Yeah, we do, but this is all not really connected. You know, it's all quite serious, these, 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 these seasonal parties. The Vienna Philharmonic, is that, that's the New Year's Eve or New that's Year's New Day? Year's concert. Yeah. And then we play all these waltzes that, I mean, you know, questionable for some people in 2022. So, you know, it's, uh, we'll have to think about this a little bit better. Well, just finally then, I'll ask you first, Charles, uh, whether you have any Thanksgiving plans. I do have, in fact. I am going to a Thanksgiving dinner being held by actual authentic Americans, but they are actual authentic American vegetarians, so I'm guessing turkey will not be on offer. What are you bringing as a side dish? What is your contribution to the evening? A nice bottle of Australian Shiraz. <laughs> Fantastic. Oh, that's, that's a very <laughs> polite and easy way out. I will be getting on a plane tomorrow and heading down to Miami to visit my beloved father and the rest of our family, and we're going to a restaurant, so the turkey will be fine. Will you be having what I ha I understand has in recent times become a Thanksgiving tradition, i.e. the all-in family brawl about Donald Trump? 
Ooh, um, actually, we're all pretty much on the same side in this nah. family when it comes to that. So it'll be reasonably peaceful on the political front. Uh, we'll see what happens after the primaries. Uh, I will, of course, be home to catch the at least the second half of the football as well, I think. The American football, which is what people also do on Thanksgiving. Before they fall asleep on the sofa, they manage to watch a little bit of football. Indeed. And Tessa, do you have any plans? Yeah, I'm actually going to New York tomorrow to celebrate Thanksgiving with my my children, who are not even American. So we like actually Thanksgiving. It's nice. You don't have to feel guilty for anything because it's not even your party and you can eat well and you can laugh and... Will there be turkey in an argument about Donald Trump at your Thanksgiving? Well, we are, of course, all aligned on this. And I was thinking after I saw these pictures of um, John F. Kennedy pardoning the, the turkey that had this sign around his neck saying, good eating, Mr. President. I thought, like, maybe we should do with pumpkin pie and marshmallows <laughs> this year. Now, it would have been easy for René Redzepi to keep his restaurant Noma as it was, seeing it had been ranked the best dining spot in the world for a few times. But in 2016, the world-famous chef announced the closure of his original Copenhagen restaurant. It reopened two years later in another corner of the Danish capital, and now almost five years since the opening of Noma 2.0, Redzepi has released a book to tell its story and how he and his team reinvented what's been called the world's most influential restaurant. René joined Monocle's Marcus Zippi on this week's edition of The Menu and began by explaining where and how he got the determination to go so far in challenging himself to close down the original Noma and open the new one. You know, we were quite uh, successful and Noma was going well. Noma, the first version of it. Uh, but at the same time, with each success that we, that, we, that we found or was given, it seemed like we were getting more and more comfortable and the creativity was becoming more and more difficult for some reason. Even though I was telling myself every day, okay, let's go to work and, and play around like we have nothing to lose. It didn't actually feel like that. You know, you were kind of a little bit frozen in your success. And so um, one decision was to simply, let's move, let's go somewhere else and see what's, what starts from that. And that was an incredibly important decision to us because not only did it, did it start uh, the idea of doing these pop-ups, traveling around the world to learn, that came from an ambition to having filled your creative sort of a well uh, for this next new Noma 2.0, we thought to ourselves, let's go travel somewhere so we can learn again. And uh, then besides that, it also uh, made us rethink everything that we have in terms of seasonality. And we decided to make the, or divide the season into three distinct moments um in the winter when everything is frozen we follow the oceans uh when everything turns green that's when we go to the plant kingdom and we only serve vegetarian foods and then when the leaves fall from the trees we go to the forest and so a little decision of saying okay let's just move one kilometer down the road which it more or less is maybe it's a, a kilometer and a half but it just uh, came with so many extra incredible you know, new thinkings. And so it's been a really good thing for us to do this. And you're telling this story also in your in your new book, Vegetable Forest Ocean, named after those three seasons you talked about. You have yep. indeed divided the year into three distinctive menus at Noma now. 
can you tell us more about that? How much extra pressure has that approach given to you? Oh, actually, more than uh, we realized at first. At first, it just, you know, it made so much sense and it really does. You know, um, obviously, the, the, the seasons are much more than three seasons. We have a myriad of micro seasons. But still having three moments every year where you have to change a menu in full, change plateware, change sort of the decor of the restaurant to reflect the moment you're in, uh, has proven to be an incredibly creative exercise that is, I would say, uh, the most challenging thing we've ever done as a creative uh, entity. We're just always behind. But uh, in this newfound pressure and newfound focus, you could say, we've also discovered many more sides to Noma and to our own creativity. How stressful has it got? I'm wondering you know, following your approach, there must be quite a few surprises. You talk about those micro seasons and how things can change quite suddenly. What kind of issues have you had? What have been some of the stressful moments where you've been wondering what to do when, say, the weather is awful outside and you can't get those ingredients you initially wanted to? Yeah, that's a constant problem. And as a cook, you learn to deal with that. You know, you have this incredible menu going for you and everyone's so happy. And you're happy and you might even have a moment of calm and, you know, thinking to yourself, okay, this is good. And then a storm brews. And by the following week, uh, 20% of your ingredients, they're not any more available. Or let's say it's a winter storm and the boats can't go out to fish. And suddenly, you know, you find yourself in a hot mess. So that is just a constant stress factor that we deal with. And honestly, it's, it can be very stressful. You wake up and it's like there's snow on the ground everywhere, or it might have been a frost. And you think to yourself, how bad was the frost? You know, was it just for an hour? Was it more than minus one? Because you know that by minus two or three, that's when a lot of the herbs will die off if it's a prolonged frost at night. And you wonder, okay, what am I, what am I going to come to work and face? Um, and that's a constant one. That's, that uh, was also the same in the old Noma. But I will say it was a little easier to deal with in the old number then. What kind of creative solutions have you come up with recently? If you give us examples of what's been happening recently. Uh, recently, well, as of recently, recently, we've actually been quite good because it's been so mild. The autumn has been truly mild. We haven't really had frost. Uh, it's only now in the, in the last two, three days that it has turned cold. Um, and, you know, for us here in the north, it's it's only five degrees. It's not really cold yet. So we haven't had any uh, great surprises, uh, actually, of this season. And if you ask me the last season, I just can't remember because it mm-hmm. happened so often. You know, there was so much rain and we had this strawberry dish on and there was a, a terrible thunderstorm uh, over the weekend. And when we came to work on Tuesdays, the strawberries, they had just exploded uh, from having drunk so much water. That was an example, you know, and it's, it sounds maybe like nothing are the strawberries. There's another berry, but it was the same for all the berries. We also had a spring. Actually, there was last spring where um, it was wet and it hailed a lot. So we didn't get a lot of stone fruits. Uh, and uh, we had a big plan to make these ferments from stone fruits. And I can't even remember what we did instead, but we always come up with something. 
A highlight there from the menu. Stay with us. The curator continues after this. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. You're with the curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24, and I'm Carlotta Rebello. New landmarks often pay homage to the city in which they're built by the way of their design. But for some, there is an ongoing dialogue between building and city which reflects wider shifts in the landscape. In this case, the cultural, economic and natural. Monocle 24's Tamsin Howard visits the Harper Concert Hall in Reykjavik and considers the symbolic importance of the building for this week's Tall Story. It's the 28th of June 2016, sitting on the top level of the Harper Concert Hall, looking through the hive-like hexagonal glass shards, I can see swarms of fans below gathering to support Iceland's football team after they qualified for the European Championships for the first time. England would go on to suffer a humiliating loss in the game, one goal to Iceland's two. The considerably smaller island nation of 330,000 would go on to make it through to the quarter-finals of the Euros, with one of their coaches still working part-time as a dentist in a small fishing town. The crowds spill through the streets of Reykjavik, with the blue, red and white flags painted on faces and draped over shoulders. Each Icelander finds a spare patch of lawn outside the central bank opposite the harbour to watch the game on the big screen, installed especially for the occasion. The sounds of the crowds are only just perceptible from inside the cavernous harbour. There is a calm composure and rootedness to this building. It's the silent witness to all. The world-class concert hall has seen millions pass through its doors, marvelling at its architecture and state-of-the-art acoustics. Architect Alafa Eliasson's façade, a geometric construction of steel and glass, references the natural phenomena and distinctive light conditions of Iceland. Its exterior is based on the crystallised basalt columns found in the country. He worked in collaboration with the architecture firm Henning Larsen, the hall's principal designers, who are best known for their long-lasting Scandinavian design and sustainable architecture. Harper has received numerous awards, not only for its architecture, role as a public space, conference centre and its cultural contributions, but for its acoustic technology. We have these lamellas, they're made out of the wood ash and they kind of break down the sound as it moves into the hall and behind that we have like an arm's length of reverberation space. The work was carried out by New York-based firm Artec Consultants, now Arup Incorporated. They also designed the acoustics for the Bela Bartók National Concert Hall in Hungary, the Sala São Paulo Concert Hall in Brazil and the famous Lincoln Center's Jazz Concert Hall in New York. Renowned for its clarity, the concert hall is perfect for classical performances and it's said to have moved some performers to tears of joy.
The plan to build a concert hall for the nation's capital is thought to have been first raised in the Icelandic press in 1881, which led to the formation of the Association for Music Halls. The idea gained traction in the early 2000s and the public were asked to submit name proposals for the venue, stipulating that it must be an Icelandic word easily articulated in most languages. Some 1,200 citizens entered over 4,000 names and Harper was chosen the first month of summer in the Old Nordic calendar, and it rather fittingly means harp in Old Norse. Construction for the concert hall began in 2007, but just as the dreams of this new cultural landmark were becoming a reality, the financial crash threw Iceland into a tumultuous period of economic uncertainty. So in just six months, three of the five biggest independent firms on Wall Street have now disappeared. The American people can remain confident in the soundness and the resilience of our financial system. The project came to a sudden halt in October of 2008. With the government's refusal to bail out the banks and pay off their debts, the venue lost its funding. The skeleton of Harper's facade, surrounded by cranes, scrap metal and piles of rubble, became a humiliating reminder of Iceland's fiscal fiasco. But the Icelandic government recognised the cultural importance of its completion and, in spite of the country's economic state, fully financed the project. Since opening in 2011, the Harper Concert Hall hasn't just seen cheering crowds, but ash clouds overhead. Well, a volcano in southwest Iceland has erupted, releasing streams of lava from under the Earth's surface. It follows thousands of small earthquakes in the area over recent weeks. The fissure erupted 30 kilometres from the capital, Reykjavik. A volcanic eruption from a nearby mountain in 2021 was the first active volcano in the area for 800 years. It looks like a scene from The Lord of the Rings, but just 20 miles from Iceland's capital, Reykjavik, it is nature that is forging a new landscape, smouldering, bubbling with fountains of fire. Harper is on the one hand an important monument rooted at the centre of this hive of cultural activity. It's witnessed the seismic events that have rocked the nation. But it is simultaneously positioned at the meeting point of land and sea. It sits at the edge of the old harbour, a few minutes walk north of the city centre, and it looks out across the Atlantic to the majestic outline of the Snæfellsnes Peninsula to the north. And much of Iceland's musical talent is indebted to this synchronism of city culture and the natural world. Björk continues to pay tribute to the island's volcanic landscape. She refers to Fossora, released earlier this year, as her Iceland album. It mirrors the volatile nature of her homeland. It's steeped in the country's choral and folk traditions, and she programmed the strings at her local coffee shop. The Harper Concert Hall hosts exhibitions, concerts, cultural events and festivals such as Airwaves, Sonar and the Reykjavik Fashion Festival. 
From internationally known artists, the comic Eddie Izzard and singer Cindy Lauper, to Iceland's native talent, including Björk, Sigur Rose, and of course, Monsters and Men, the Harper will continue to witness the growth of its small, curious, culturally rich nation. Perhaps with even further fortune on the football pitch. We're going to hear next from Laura McAllister, a former Wales football captain who was told to remove her rainbow bucket hat as she entered a World Cup stadium in Qatar. McAllister, who is a gay woman and past FIFA Council candidate, said she was told she could not wear the hat during Wales' match against the USA on Monday. She's been speaking to Monaco's Andrew Muller. Laura, first of all, I, I have to ask, because we only saw the video not and didn't hear the audio, what did they actually say to you about your hat and why you couldn't wear it? Well, that, that's the issue, really. They didn't say anything. Um, they just told uh, me and others who were ahead of us in the queue to remove our rainbow bucket hats. They, they didn't actually explain why, and I did ask several times what was the reason for having to take the hat off. And the uh, female security guard said, first of all, regulation. And then when I said which regulation, um, they repeated regulation. And then eventually one of their, I assume, supervisors who had been standing a bit further away came up and just uh, insisted again that we took the hats off. But we certainly didn't get any explanation as to why we needed to take the hats off. Uh, And have they made any gesture towards returning the hats? Uh, well, I can't really answer that one because I did actually retain my hat because we had an option of um, taking the hats to what they called a restricted area, um, restricted goods area, which is quite some distance actually from the turnstiles. And bear in mind, we'd already queued up for you know the best part of 30 or 40 minutes to get to that point. Um, but they did say to me that if I went out and, and took the hat there, I'd be allowed to come through a sort of fast track channel but I, I didn't really think that the hats would still be there when we came out. So I tucked mine away after, out of view and came back in without wearing it, by the way, but, um, you know, in, in my pocket. So I, I did uh, I did keep mine. But I, I've heard stories of other fans who were told to put them in a bin um, or to just leave them with the security guards with no guarantees, obviously, that they would have them back at the end of the game. I mean, obviously preposterous though all this is, we are talking after all about a bucket hat with stripes on it and stripes arranged in a colour and an order which occurs quite naturally. Um, (laughs) Are you surprised by what a mess FIFA has made of handling this? Because it's not like that this was not discussed at any point in the 12 years between Qatar being awarded the World Cup and the World Cup kicking off. It's been discussed several times um, and we have we have had several assurances because of the position with regard to LGBT people in Qatar. We sought those reassurances that rainbow attire and rainbow flags would be committed in the stadia here. And we, we have that in writing in several different uh, 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 occasions. So, yes, of course, we were surprised because... It was almost as if we hadn't really had to think about it in the run-up to the uh, actual games because we were told quite categorically that rainbow hats and rainbow armbands and rainbow wristbands were all permitted. So it was a a surprise, you know, I have to say. I I literally hadn't thought about it until someone ahead of us in the queue said that they'd had these 
problems actually getting through the security you know and to, and to answer your first question am i surprised um well not really i think you know when qatar was awarded the tournament 12 years ago lots of us had serious misgivings about holding a tournament uh, as big as the world cup in a place like qatar for a, for a whole host of different reasons but i think what we've got to remember in all of this is that this is a fifa world cup you know not a qatar world cup it's a fifa world cup held in qatar and FIFA's line on this has been that everyone is welcome and it's a World Cup for everybody, that it's inclusive and so on. And clearly they weren't able to enforce that in any shape or form in terms of behaviour of local officials. And I think that's pretty scandalous. I mean, the rainbow armbands, which you mentioned, became a flashpoint just before kickoff. Several uh, captains of the competing teams had signalled their intention to wear them uh, as their captain's armband. These were the, the, the one love armbands. Uh, the Football Associations of England, Wales and others all buckled pretty quickly when it was suggested that those might incur a yellow card. And obviously, you have represented Wales at football yourself and you, you would have a player's perspective of this. What do you think? Should the players have just stood up and said, I'm going to wear the armband and the referee can do his worst? Well, I think we just have to be a bit careful because the timing was engineered, in my opinion, very deliberately to put the greatest pressure on the players at a time when they could least afford to focus on anything other than football. And I mean, remember, this came to England first because their game was earlier than ours on the on the Monday. Um, and this we're talking about hours before kickoff. You know, it, it really you know shouldn't happen that players are put in that invidious position where they're having to make a decision. Whether the decision is right or wrong, you know, is 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 not something I can comment on because I don't I really don't think this should have happened at the time it happened. If this had happened a week before, then the players could have had a meeting, they could have discussed the issue and come to some conclusion about what they wanted to do. But I think it was very deliberately put on to the players just hours before kickoff. So there was no chance of consultation as a group there was no chance of the uh, captains of what we, we i think we can fairly call progressive national associations getting together to see if we could have a collective position on this um and i think that's really unfortunate but i'm afraid very deliberate um so you know the last thing we want to do is see a player punished for something that isn't anything to do with the field of play and play on that pitch and that's what um, FIFA were threatening. I mean, I, mean, I believe, I, I obviously wasn't there, but I believe they were told that they would face sanctions of a yellow card and more. Now, you know, that's a very difficult position to put a player in. You know, he's about to represent his country, in our case, for the first time in 64 years and asking them, you know, to, to venture into the unknown, really. Now, I appreciate people might say, yes, they should have and they should have uh, taken the punishment. But I wonder if people would have felt the same had that punishment been an immediate red card for Gareth Bale or for um, Harry Kane. Um, we can argue the, the pros and cons of it, and I think there are pros and cons of it, but the reality is this should never have happened in the way it did. What have you made of the efforts that players, some players have made to make their feelings known despite these strictures? We've seen Wales, your country, uh, training rather pointedly with rainbow striped flags at the end of the pitch. Uh, and we saw the German team, of course, all putting their hands over their mouths for their pre-match team photo. Yes, I mean, I think it shows just how aware players are, certainly some of the players here, um, the Germans, uh, the English, the Welsh, about 
how concerned people are at home about things that are going on. And I, I think that's to be encouraged. You know, I know that the players, the German players did it off their own back. Um, I think us as a squad in Wales uh, feel very passionate about human rights for everybody, you know, whether it's human rights for migrant workers here or for LGBT people or for women. And therefore, you know, I think it's it's incumbent on us to live those values and those beliefs whilst we're actually in a FIFA World Cup, wherever that is, by the way. And this one just happens to be in Qatar. So why would we not do that? You know, if, if anything, it puts a greater onus on us to show that, um, we believe LGBT rights are human rights and that everyone should have the opportunity to be themselves, their authentic selves and live the lives, lives that they want to. Uh, I'll close, Laura, on hopefully a slightly more upbeat note. You alluded earlier to the fact that this is the first time Wales are playing at a World Cup since 1958 uh, when they were knocked out in the quarterfinals 1-0 against Brazil by a teenager called Pelé. Um, How big a deal is this not just for Welsh football but for Wales? Oh, it's a very big deal. I mean, I think we knew it would be really once we got over that playoff hurdle against Austria and Ukraine because, it, you know, it's been a very long time, six decades, as you say, but um, Wales is a very different country to the country it was in the 1950s. Um, you know, we're, we're a very modern, vibrant country. Some people's views of Wales haven't kept pace with that either, you know, and we because there's such little brand awareness of Wales, as a marketeer would say, across the world, People still think of Wales as being a, a land of coal mines and choirs and so on, whereas, you know, we're, we're a country that has probably one of the most radical green agendas of any country in Europe and a, a country where um, equal rights for women and for gay people are right at the heart of everything we do. So I think it's given us an opportunity, really, to project an image of Wales that is modern and inclusive and diverse and outward-looking to the rest of the world because you know when you're in the same group as as England the juxtaposition of, of England and Wales means it's very easy to show to the rest of the world that Wales is not a region of England or some adjunct to England it's a separate nation with its own language with its own culture with its own anthem um, and I think we've shown that already you know I, I was, I've been told by several people that already our anthem is deemed to be the loudest and best sung in the World Cup and our flag has won competitions for being the nicest flag. So, you know, we, we're, it's very, very important for us because what we can do with that, of course, is, is translate that back into economic benefits for Wales, into tourism, into promoting Welsh universities, into pr- promoting our well-being and future generations, sustainability agenda. So it's massive politically for us as well as on the sports field. You're with the curator, our weekly highlights show here on Monocle 24. It's almost time to head off, but before we do, it's time to look at one of the most exciting discoveries in recent years that happened this week. After 140 years, the black-naped pheasant pigeon has been sighted again in Papua New Guinea. So let's end today's show by looking back to The Globalist, where Monocle's Vincent McAvinney spoke to Dominic Cousins, an award-winning nature writer and bird expert, about this exciting rediscovery. Well, it's absolutely fantastic. I don't know if uh, your listeners have uh, done the rounds of social media, but there's been a a video out of the moment that they looked at the uh, remote camera and saw that they'd rediscovered this this sort of, it it felt like uh, some kind of completely unknown 
like a, a monster from the past, really, that they'd like a dinosaur almost, that they'd they'd suddenly looked at this black late pheasant pigeon and saw it there in the flesh, having heard about it, looked for it. They'd spent the last month trying to find it, thinking about it every day, and there it was. And the sheer exhilaration on their faces was something to behold. And yeah, I see the exhibition co-leader said that it was like finding a unicorn. Why is this bird uh, so special and and why had it been presumed to have been uh, made extinct? Well, it's um, there's a number of species throughout the world. There's probably about 20 species throughout the world that haven't been seen for more than 100 years. These are birds which have been found on ex- expeditions in Victorian times often uh, and They'd gone to remote islands that haven't been visited very much by Western scientists later on. And um, birds that live on the ground, such as this pheasant pigeon, are often the most elusive. I've spent many, many hours myself looking in forests trying to see birds on the ground. They, They can be incredibly difficult. They just wander off into the distance. And so these are among the most difficult birds to find in the world. And the fact is that um, people, at least from Western science, science, don't always go to the islands where these things have been lost. This one's particularly interesting because they did do an expedition two years ago to try to find it, and they completely failed. Mm. So they were pretty excited this time. And finally, um, there are said to be just a small number of these birds, they believe, at the moment on this island. What can be done now to preserve this species? Well, it's a great question, isn't it? I did hear a rumour that the forest that uh, they found this bird in is already, um, they've signed a a logging licence for it. So really, we just have to try to, if possible, maybe crowdfund to to buy it up instead. There are so many of these situations around the world where rare animals are under threat. So the exhilaration may be somewhat short-lived, unfortunately, unless the money can be found and agreement the bird does have quite um, cultural significance to the people who live on the island, Ferguson Island. And so uh, with their agreement, it always has to be with local mm. agreement, perhaps they can come to some agreement in this case because well, the bird has had a lot of good publicity. Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Carlotta Rabello. Join us again next week to hear some of the very best of the programmes here on Monocle 24. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>